Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey guys, this one is, uh, this one's quite raw. Joe DiNardo is not some professional meditation teacher, not some professional public speaker. He's um, a lawyer who lives in New York State who uh, has happens to have meditated for a long time, hasn't made a big deal out of it, but he went through something really difficult, the loss of his wife, and meditation helped him a lot um, where, it, where he really needed it. And he wrote a book. It's a letter to his wife. And uh, you're going to hear uh, him speak about why he did it, and you're going to hear some uh, as I said, you, it, it gets pretty raw. It's really an honor. It, it was an honor to sit with him and, and talk about this stuff. And, and I, I think it's going to be very useful to anybody who listens to it. So I give you Joe DiNardo. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Well, first of all, uh, my condolences. Um, it has not been that long, actually. since About a year and a half. Yeah. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, I think, under the circumstances. Normally, I, I start by asking people to give me their backstory about how they started meditating, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, I think maybe today, given your circumstances, it would be better to start with um, your story about how you met your wife and okay. uh, what happened from there. Okay. Well, uh, the way I met my wife was that I had a, a personal friend, Elliot, Lasky, who had a home building company in Western New York. And I, being an attorney, would be speaking to him from time to time. I invested with him. And there was always this woman that answered, not answered the phone, but sometimes answered the phone. Her name was Marsha Anastasi. And, you know, somehow something, somebody mentioned to me, because she didn't know me, that she loved my voice on the phone. She loved when I happened to call, and she happened to answer the phone. Yeah, you have a good radio voice. Oh, thank you. So we started to, I started to flirt. You know, phone, just just casual flirting on the phone. I asked her to lunch, and I fell in love with her. The good news for me was she fell in love with me, too. And, you know, after a few years of um, dating, and um, I had a son from a previous marriage, and um, he was only four or five, and I didn't want to introduce him to a new woman unless I knew I was going to marry her. So I sort of kept that separate for a while. But then we married in 99. My daughter came in 2000. Um, And, you know, I have to say that from the very beginning of our relationship, I loved her completely. Um, she loved me completely, and we just were friends. I mean, we had fun together. Every day was sort of like enjoyable being married and being together. I never felt like I wish I was doing something different or being with somebody else or fantasizing. I just didn't do it anymore. Um, and then a couple of major events. Um, in 2005, we came home from a vacation in Italy been gone for about two weeks, and I had not had a chance to work out, you know, physically work out in a gym or anything or run during that time. 
So we got to the house, and it was Sunday morning now, and I decided to go downstairs and just exercise in this little gym that I have. And I was doing that, and suddenly my head exploded. It was later, I was told it was a thunderclap headache. I could barely walk. I couldn't talk. I was delusion, you know, delirious. But I didn't feel I needed to go to the hospital at that moment. I'd had migraine headaches for many years. We thought there were migraine headaches. The next morning at the office, the same thing happened again. About 9, 9.30 in the morning, my head just exploded. So people at the office took me to the emergency room, and they did the normal protocol for a migraine, which is to hydrate you and give you some heavy-duty pain medication, and before you know it, you feel great. That's what happened. But one of my friends said to the doctor, why don't you give him a CAT scan? The doctor said, we don't do that for migraine headaches. He said, yeah, but he's had them. This is, this is way different than a migraine. Please. Anyways, they did. And by then, my wife was there at the hospital. I'm in the emergency room. The doctor walks over and says, Joe, gee, here's your problem. And he shows me this film, and he says, you have a large tumor on the right side of your brain. I said, really? He goes, yeah. He said, but the real problem is it's spiraling into the base of your skull where there's very little room. I was later told they call that an elegant area of the brain. But your basic functions of breathing and seeing and hearing are all in that space. And they felt they needed to do, he said, you need to see a neurosurgeon. And I said, well, okay, well, you know, tomorrow I'll, when I want to get to the office, I'll call one. He said, no, you need to see a neurosurgeon today. And so they took me in an ambulance to Roswell Park Cancer Institute, not because they thought I had cancer, but I have connections there, and also they do brain tumors all the time. I thought, that's a good place for me. And uh, they said, we're going to have to do surgery on you as quickly as we can, but you first have to. Anyways, long story, what happened, interestingly, for Marsha and me, was that a part of me wondered how she was going to react to this. And to my very pleasant, pleasant uh, experience, she stood up and was there for me every step of the way. That allowed me to deal with what I thought was even more important than just the tumor, and that was that the pending surgery... They, had, they said to me, very realistically, A, you might not come out of this, or B, if you do, you might be blind, you might be deaf, you might be all of those. And for the first time in my life, and especially since I had been practicing meditation by that time for many, many years, I was confronted with my own mortality in other words, I really had this challenge. Yeah, it stops being theoretical. It wasn't theoretical anymore, right. It wasn't a meditation exercise. It was like, this could be it. The thought occurred to me, 
what am I going to be like mentally before they take me in for surgery? Am I going to finally say, you know, I was raised Catholic, I, and I was nine years in a Catholic school, went to Mass six days a week, was completely, you know, indoctrinated with all of those Christian Catholic things. Nothing wrong with them, by the way. But I'm just saying that later in life, I began to feel that I would like to know what it is not to be so indoctrinated, but just to find out for myself what's going on. That's what brought me to meditation practice. Well, now for the first time, I was going to find out whether at the last moments I was going to pray, ask God for forgiveness or protection, ask a saint to intervene, or whether I was going to just be in the moment and see what happened right up until I was given anesthesia. Because after that, I didn't know what was going to happen. And um, it, it, it is a very comfortably never relied on any crutches and stayed present. I felt very strong in my practice, especially in those days leading up to the surgery and at the moment of going to the very last moment of consciousness. That was a big uh, moment in my life and in my practice because it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't theoretical anymore. And I felt I had reached a certain, I don't know, plateau, so to speak, in my disconnect from all of my previous conditioning. My wife continued to be a pillar of strength for me, and as a result, I only loved her more, respected her more, and understood that how, what a strong woman she was um, for being able to deal with me after the surgery. So that was sort of how our relationship got started, continued to improve, and we continued to have my daughter raising her. Uh, my you had son. daughter you adopted when you got together. Correct, we adopted her in uh, 2000. Uh, and, you know, very few problems as a result of the surgery. I mean, I have a, a um, what they call damage to my trigeminal nerve on the right side of my face, which gives me um, the opportunity when I'm sitting to always have some physical sensation to focus on. Should when I you're run, meditating, yeah. Right. Yeah. So if I should run out of, you know, following my breath, there's always a physical sensation of some sort going on on the right side of my face. Um you describe your wife as, uh, just from my memory of reading your book, uh, being a great cook. Be, not only being great, really supportive of you, and that you have a really, and you had a pretty warm relationship, and but being a great cook, a great mother, really stylish, very kind. You're right. You're right. She yes, um, she loved Madison Avenue. She called it Disneyland for adults, <laughs> and. Uh, she was very stylish. She somehow had a knack for understanding fashion and what the new fashions were going to be, even before they became, you know, well-known. 
Um, she was beautiful, and you know, but you know, she was the kind of woman that always made me feel that she and I were together as a team, and we were funny together too. I mean, I know that my friends, our friends, always enjoyed being with us because we would do riffs on each other and on our relationship and and be self-deprecating, and uh, it was fun. I mean, it was I, I enjoyed being with her. And at what point did you find out that she was having health problems of her own? Never found out that she was having health problems. That was the, uh, again, uh, the uh, constant um, surprises that life can spring on you at any instant. Um, I was in New York for something, came home. She said, uh, this is in 2013. Um, she was 52. She said, I, you know, I, st- I have a stomach ache and my, my stomach feels hard to the touch, and it did. I said, well, let's see, let's see what happens. There was, she wasn't sick. The next day she developed like uh, a little rash and was scratching. We thought that was unusual, but still not enough to rush to a doctor. But the next day she turned out she was turning jaundice. I said, we need some help. And that's when we were told she had probably gallstones blocking maybe a uh, duct causing a backup, and they were going to do gallbladder surgery. That's how that all started. And uh, along the way, they had to do a test that you thought was going to be a reasonably simple piece of business, and it, and it, it pointed out that, in fact, it was not gallstones. It was cancer, Correct. Pan- pancreatic cancer. Right. And then the, you know, it it was so interesting because it just kept getting more difficult. Sure, being told you that your wife had pancreatic cancer, of course, for her was horrific. But they kept saying that there was this little shadow on her liver in addition to the tumor on her pancreas. But it was nothing. They did. They was just like that. It's nothing. We see it all the time. But, you know, we have to tell you about it. I went for a second opinion down here in Sloan Kettering. Same thing. little shadow. I have to tell you about it, but it's nothing. And the doctor here said, my chief radiologist is not here today, but I'm going to have him read it over the weekend just to look at the films. I, I really like his opinion. But you go on your vacation, Joe. When you come back, bring your wife here, pre-op, we're going to do the surgery, and we think this is our best option. We went to Florida on that Saturday. Monday, my cell phone rings. It's the doctor, Dr. Allen, a wonderful guy here at Sloan Kettering. And he says, "Uh, Joe, I think um, we need to get your wife in for a biopsy on that little shadow we see. I said, well, what do you mean? He says, we think we should biopsy it. I said, when? He said, when can you get her here? I said, what changed? I mean, I said, what happened? Who, what, what did your radiologist tell you? Well, he thinks we should biopsy it. So that, we left Florida. Always bad when the doctor's not giving you a straight answer. Right. Well, they didn't know the, but the truth is they didn't know. Yeah, but there, there's certain elliptical nature to the answers that, that he's giving. I think so. Yes. So we came down here, they did the biopsy. The next morning we go in, 
to see Dr. Allen. He marches into the office with his um, um, the younger team of doctors learning from him. And he said, I guess we should talk about biopsy. Um, I get nervous just talking about this. And uh, we, all, we both said yes. He said, well, it was positive. So I said, well, what does that mean for the diagnosis, which was just pancreatic cancer stage one? He said, well, it jumps to stage four, meaning it has metastasized, no surgery. It just is what it is. Stage four is not a good diagnosis. And he said, you should be treated in Buffalo. They're probably going to do chemotherapy. They can do it just as well there as we can here at Sloan. Um, and you'll be home and so on. And we went home. And we started chemotherapy. How did your wife react in that moment when? She, she uh, grabbed my hand, squeezed, and fought back a tear. She didn't like to cry in front of people she didn't know she cried in front of me when we were alone and she could I could tell she was stealing herself for what clearly was going to be the fight of her life she knew that she didn't know enough about it but she knew that much about it so my wife wasn't somebody who would talk about a lot of these things and her own mortality or fears of her own mortality to a lot of people. But in private, she would do it. That was more her style. And how brutal did the, I mean, was it, how, how brutal did it get in the ensuing months? I don't know if you've ever seen anybody go through chemotherapy, but like when they first bring you in, they sit you down and they hook you up and all the different things that they do, they start pumping basically poison into your system. The first hour, she was fine. She could talk and so on. But then by the second hour, she would start to curl up into a little ball on the reclining chair that she was on. And by the third, fourth hour, she was just huddled in pain and discomfort and nausea. Um, they would unhook her after, like, I think it was like four or five hours. And But she refused to take a wheelchair. She said, I'm not doing that. I'm walking down with you. And I would walk her down, get the car. She couldn't talk anymore. Um... But as the months wore on of this kind of treatment where they just um, I didn't know I didn't I wasn't prepared to go into all of this. I'm sorry. Um, take your time. It's hard. Take your time. So as the months wore on, the treatments became more and more difficult because the chemo builds up in your body. It's not a goes in goes out it goes in it stays in and then it builds up so the toxicity of the chemo to the rest of your body first forget what it's doing to the cancer but we had a lot of good news during the two years that she was treated because each time they would look the tumor shrank oh my goodness her cancer numbers would go down but then all of a sudden 
two weeks later, they skyrocketed again. They found more mini tumors on the backside of her liver than they found them elsewhere. And no matter what happened, over the course of the two years, it was always a glide down as she continued to um, sustain herself. It was a slow glide, but then she stopped eating uh, and started to lose weight drastically at the end of the last three or four months and losing her hair, all of those things. Just um, a husband's worst nightmare. With the worst nightmare. Yeah. She was living the nightmare. Yeah. I was watching the nightmare. Right, right. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it was, to say it was challenging would be putting it mildly. Well, I have just a tiny bit of experience in what you, my wife just went through breast cancer uh, stage zero, so she's going to be fine. Um, but he, you know, double mastectomy, and wow. uh, and so I watched that. But that I think is just a fraction of what you uh, endured. So I, I have just a, I can only extrapolate from my experience as a husband who loves his wife as to what you went through. Um, so, yeah, I can imagine how difficult it was. Let me ask you at this juncture before we keep going with this chronology of, of your story. You have mentioned that you've been a meditator for decades, from the, since the 70s. Um, right. Uh, and and I, I just wonder, as you were going through... I mean, she was obviously going through hell, so I there's no. I, I know you, neither of us wants to minimize what your, your wife was going through, but as you were going through your own uh, miseries here, um, how useful was meditation, and, and and if it was useful, how so? Well, I started practicing in '75, earnestly, and with with with. Uh, uh, under the, the, the tutelage of Joseph Goldstein, who you know and you've written about and, and you sat with as well, uh, and others, many others. So by the time that this started to happen, I had been sitting uh, multiple, multiple courses and at home, at home practice for four decades by that, or three and a half decades. So I had what I considered to be um, a fairly solid practice outside of the retreat center, an at-home practice, and it was just part of my life. It was It became just part of who I was. So my thinking process may be very different than a lot of other people who don't have a practice to understand the verbiage and why people think a certain way, but... Even in the darkest moments of all of this, I recognized that these were challenges for me or opportunities for me to challenge myself, to still stay focused, to still be open to the suffering that my wife was experiencing and the feelings and the emotions that those feel that that was generating in me, 
I continued my practice through all of this. And I, I just hope this doesn't come out the wrong way. I mean, those dark, dark moments are also opportunities to grow and to understand what it is to be human and to be have life just coming at you. And I didn't want to get lost in all of that and get overwhelmed by all of that and be unable to function, really be there for my wife. I think that my practice allowed me to hear her and to listen to what she needed me to say and how she needed me to be there for her. Better than if I didn't, did, certainly better than if I did not have the practice. Can, can you walk, just to jump in for a second, can you walk me through, because I think, I think people like to really get a nuts and bolts sense of how this works. So you're having a, you're having a, uh, a bad day. I imagine you had a lot of bad days in this period. You're feeling scared. You're feeling angry. Whatever you're feeling, you sit and meditate. And how does literally? What are the nuts and bolts of how the meditation practice can help you confront these very overwhelming, difficult emotions? <clears throat> I think that the practice allowed me. I, I can't speak for everyone, but it allowed me to be more open to the pain that and those emotions that you mentioned as I was experiencing them. I was able to sit for long periods of time and allow the sadness and the sense of despair, the helplessness, to sort of be there and let me feel it, observe it, not try to correct it. And that, that practice, I think, allows, allowed me and allows me to feel more confident, to be open, to be free of self-judgment and of... Um, feeling separate from my wife's pain and other people's pain and suffering. And so one example of what I mean in terms of being able to be open to hearing what she needs versus what I want to say. In other words, I might want to say to her, you're going to be fine, or I might want to say to her, you know, you need to do your will or we need to have a talk about. But those kinds of comments would be more like what I wanted to do or what I needed to do, not what she needed to do. She needed me not to ever take her hope away. I believe she needed me never to say to her, you're not dealing with this the right way. We need to deal with this. We talked a lot. We cried a lot together. Every night, I couldn't hold her anymore, but I would reach my hand over and just 
grab her shoulder and just hold her shoulder in the palm of my hand. That was it. And then, just a few days before she passed away, we were in the bedroom, and uh, the nurse um, had just left, but in, before she left, she was expressing to me in front of my wife how serious the situation was. And when the nurse left, it was just my wife and I in the room. My wife was basically laying down, eyes closed, not talking. She suddenly sat up, and she looked at me, and she said, Do you think that I'm ever going to get better? And I said, I don't think so, honey. I don't think you are. And she just sort of like, it was just a powerful moment for me. She just turned and looked out the window, gazed at something, turned back and looked at me and said, oh, oh, and laid back down again. That was the first time that I think she asked me, what do you think? What do you actually you think about what the doctors are saying versus, you know, more generic stuff. I could just tell. So I think by learning to be open, by learning to be open, you can listen to someone else, especially someone in great distress. And instead of imposing on that, your needs, your need to feel better, your need to say certain things, whatever you think you can hear what they need. My life, my wife lived with a diagnosis of stage four pancreatic cancer for two years. When she was diagnosed, they told me she had six months best. If she ever made it 12 months, it would be a miracle. And anything past that, they didn't have any records for it. People do, did live, but it was just like a rarity, a, something doctors talk about. She lived for two years. So I think that she did that because she needs, that's what she needed to do. That's how she needed to do it. And I think all of the meta and rosaries and prayers that were said for her accumulatively sort of gave her an additional energy boost that I witnessed that prior to that I would have just said that's sort of like, you know, stuff people talk about. But I think that it all, uh, my experience was that it, it actually worked. It actually had an effect. So that's how the practice allowed me to sort of shed some of the weight of my own needs, try to separate my um, what I needed her to be like versus what she needed me to be like. 
So as in every time, everything in my life, the practice is always there for me. Now, even stronger than it was before because I've had these uh, experiences that on the one hand are just like people could say, wow, that's so sad. What a sad story. And then, Joe, you had this tumor and, oh, man, you've had enough. But the reality is, I mean, life does not make judgments. It's not that kind. I mean, life is a rough thing. And it's how we respond to it that really creates our next experience. And even though I would never say that I would like to go through any of this again with my wife ever, nor would I ever say to someone else, that would be a good thing for you to go through. I'm not sad that I had the experiences. I feel that the experiences have made my practice stronger and have made me um, 10% happier. <laughs> <laughs> to use a phrase that I've heard. <laughs> Maybe 15%. Yeah, but it's just you're defining happier at a different in a way that most people wouldn't, you know, like you're Right. You know, most people think of most people confuse happiness with excitement, you know, like I'm 10% happier cuz I'm 10% richer or because I got more ice cream last night or uh, whatever, I just got a promotion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you're me I think what I take from what you're saying is like uh, I'm ten percent stronger as a person. I'm ten percent more alive, and in the fullest sense of that word, um, in that I'm in touch with reality as it's actually unfolding. Um, so you're really you're talking about ten percent happier in a much more holistic way than the wise ass Dan Harris often does. <laughs> this show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So I'm reading a book right now by uh, Desmond Tutu and um, the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. And it's about joy Mm -hmm. and the fact that both of them 
experience a sense of joy that is different from having ice cream at night, your favorite ice cream, or all these temporary experiences that we have of happiness, but that they both, both of them have suffered greatly in their lives. Both of them continue to have those experiences, and yet they both are very joyous. And the joy that they have is more profound and, <clears throat> and, and not temporary. And I, yeah. So I have I have ten percent of that going on for me. I but think. put put some. Can you just say more about what that joy feels like and how one accesses it? Well, the joy it is not an ecstatic type of joy for me. It is not something that, that is energizing. It is a a type of joy, and I'm not sure I would have picked that word, but that's the word that they used for their book and the description they have with it. Um, it's a it's a, a greater sense of balance. It's a feeling of centeredness. It is a uh, source of strength for me, um, and I and it is an, an it's an opening. It's like you know what I feel like. Let's say you're climbing a mountain. The mountain being life itself, and because we are always judging everything, including ourselves, and uh, commenting on everything and having a variety of different uh, responses to things, it's like carrying an 80-pound knapsack on your back as you're climbing up this hill. But through the practice, you begin to let go of all of those things. You try to work with non-judgmental states of mind, uh, and to learn in the practice of you suddenly notice that you're getting caught in a storyline in your head and just say to yourself, oh, that's thinking. It's sort of that's an objective description of what's happening. You're not saying that's bad thinking or good thinking. You were just thinking, and let me come back and be centered again. After a while, it's like taking off that backpack you're still climbing the hill. It just feels a lot different, mm-hmm. the hill being life. But now suddenly you have um, released this weight on your back of always judging people and judging other and carrying anger and negative emotions around um, and storylines that keep you trapped in this, doing the same thing again and again. As you begin to shed that, you begin to let go of some of that weight on your back. And it just makes the climb a little easier. That's well, how I experience it. Well said. Thank um, you. So why did you decide to write this book? Well. It's a very moving book, I should say. Thank and you. And very short. I mean, I, I think short I read little it. Short little book. And, yeah. And uh, I wrote the book. And what happened is when my wife passed away, and of course, there was a, a day or so between that and the funeral. And um, usually at a funeral like that, nieces and nephews are asked to each say a few words about their aunt. And and that's great. And that's a wonderful way to do it. But for some reason, I felt that something, my wife, I wanted to do something different for her. And I had been working myself on a letter to her, not necessarily to read it to her because she was really not conscious 
the last couple of days. But just to sort of like, um, as a catharsis for me. And so I finished the letter right after uh, the next day. And I said, you know what? I think I can do this. I think I can read this letter as her eulogy. And when we're at the church and uh, they said, you know, Joe DiNardo um, would like to speak now, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do it, you know, without breaking down. But all of a sudden I had this experience of like, as I was walking up to the podium, of like, wow. I'm gonna, I feel I felt so centered. I felt so focused. I felt so sad. But I wasn't, didn't feel like I was rejecting any of this. And I said, I just had the, I didn't think it. I had the experience of, I can do this. I can read this in honor of my wife. So subsequent to that, so many people, friends, and even people I really didn't know that well, for months would keep stop me or call me, gee, have we heard about the letter you read? You know, could we get the letter? And people that were there said, Joe, it was so inspiring and we really liked it. Could would you have a copy of it or something? I thought of uh, maybe I put a little book together, call it a letter to my wife. It would be the letter. Maybe put into it some of the emails I had sent during the two years where I would describe Marsha's situation, what the diagnosis was, and what was happening for us, to our friends, both near and far. And so I asked my friend Charles Koppelman, who would you ask to help you put this together? He had lost his wife to pancreatic cancer as well. He said, my daughter-in-law, Amy Koppelman, is a writer, and this is what he, she, she can help you. So I called Amy up, sweetheart of a person. She said, I'm swamped with deadlines of my own, but this woman, Yona McDonough, is a, an editor of mine, and maybe she can help you. I called her, and we put together the book. And that's what this little book, A Letter to My Wife, is. It's fundamentally the letter, which is a couple of pages, and then various chapters about me and about my wife and about us and things like that. And then I put at the end of the book some tips that I had learned and felt I could share with other caregivers in the same situation or with people themselves who might be suffering with um, some serious illness or mortality issues. So you had mentioned this as we were walking into the studio, something I've never thought to do and I wouldn't have thought to do, but you said you'd be willing to do it. I wonder if you could just read that opening bit because I think it is quite powerful. Okay. My dearest love, I write this letter tonight on tear-stained paper. My heart lies in pieces on our bedroom floor. But I wanted to share something with you before you go on your journey. How or why this happened, I don't know. But I do know that I love you so desperately that the thought of you not lying next to me ever again is too painful to think about. Watching you suffer and endure one treatment after another 
Seeing you ravaged and unable to eat for months was the hardest thing I have ever done. But nothing compared to your suffering, my love. I know that. For two years I knew this day would come, but you made me never really believe it. I've begged and prayed that you would never leave me. Inevitably, here I am holding your hand, surrounded by family and you slowly slipping away breath by breath. But how can you look so beautiful? Even after you slipped away, I knelt there asking you to please turn to me and say you felt okay. But you were gone. I know how my heart broke into pieces. I remember two years ago when you were admitted to the hospital for what everyone thought was a simple scope or snip out gallstones and maybe put in a small stent. Well, they did the stent there, but the doctor did not see any gallstones. And we, of course, Dan, we talked about this. I'm going to skip over this part. Okay. I saw your face go white. Your eyes teared up for a moment. And in that instant, I had two overwhelming feelings. This is right after they told us it was cancer. First, the fear and sadness of what this might mean for you, for us. But at that same moment, I was completely awash with the most incredible sense of love for you. Pure, unconditional love. I knew then that I wanted to be and would be there every step of wherever this journey might take you. I never knew how much I loved you, and in that moment, I knew and experienced a love I'd never shared or experienced before. Thank you, my sweet. Know this. Juliana, our daughter, is going to be okay. You have skillfully built a wonderful village around her with Haley, Aaron, Mona, all her cousins, and, of course, family and friends. We will all protect her and guide her and let her know she's loved and accepted in this world. Your family is going to be okay. What a fierce protector you were for them. How you love them all. I am so happy that in your final moments, they could be there right beside us and say farewell to the daughter, sister, and aunt that they loved. Your mom, she will be okay. I know the thought of her burying her young husband and now her even Younger daughter caused you such distress. But all of us will care for her now, so please do not worry. Me? We promised each other that we would always tell each other the truth, so no lies now. I'm not okay. I will never be okay. Okay is coming home from work lying on the couch with a glass of wine and watching you glide around the kitchen working your magic, preparing dinner. Okay is going out to Hutch's or Giancarlo's or wherever for dinner and just talking and sharing for hours. Okay is taking one of our trips to Naples or somewhere else you plan with the whole family or with Chris and Andrea. Okay is holding you in my arms and loving you so hard The tears often flowed from our eyes. Okay is here, is you here with me. That is okay. So I'm not okay. But I will be there for Juliana, our vast array of friends and families, and I will be fine. Maya Angelou wrote, They will never remember what you said. 
They will never remember what you did, but they will always remember how you made them feel. And oh, how you made us feel. Your smile, your sparkling eyes, your pure pleasure in family and friends. You made each and every person that knew you feel the real connection, a real affection, and a real acceptance without judgment. A song that we loved by Bruce Springsteen went like this. We said we'd walk together, baby, come what may. That come the twilight, should we lose our way? If as we're walking, a hand should slip free, I'll wait for you. Should I fall behind, wait for me. Well, your hand has slipped free. So go. And if it takes 10,000 years, I will find you again. Have no fear as you travel. You are slipping away now. I see it. I know it. Holding your hand is the greatest privilege of my life. Thank you. Now go, sweetheart. Your work is done here. Your suffering is soon over. Take as much of me as you want. Embark upon your journey. Your devoted husband, Joe. Incredibly powerful. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Cannot have been easy, even though you've been through it before. I guess um, in our remaining time, I'd, I'd love to know, you are very clearly and admittedly dealing with a lot of grief, deservedly, justifiably dealing with a lot of grief. You lost what sounds like an amazing uh, partner. How is the meditation helping with the grief? Well, there's no question that I have strong feelings of depression and loss and loneliness. But, again, maybe to non-meditators this is going to sound a little crazy. But there's nothing I can do about that. I mean, those are perfectly natural human responses to that, and and I know that. But how I respond to them is under my control. And I have decided that I'm going to open myself to them. And the practice allows me and helps me to do that. As a result, I'm not feeding them. I don't feed them any additional energy. When I wake up on a day and all of a sudden I have this sense of loneliness or depression, I leave it alone and I just let it be there. And, you know, my practice now, I mean, there's no question that sitting at a retreat, as you've experienced, is a very powerful uh, boost to anybody's practice. But sitting at home uh, in your your normal life and continuing that practice is the bridge and the link between those opportunities you might get to go on a retreat, which don't always come so often in a busy life. And during the two years that Marcia was suffering, didn't come at all. So I feel now more than I ever did before that I am doing the practice every day, almost all day. Mm. 
I find myself continuously checking back in to my breath or to whatever might be happening. As I sit here with you, I'm aware of the feelings of sadness in talking about and having read the letter that we just did. I'm aware of being here, and I try to be, make myself pay attention to as much as I can that occurs to, that is occurring to me on a regular basis in my life. So I feel that the practice, again, I have been doing it for a long time, four decades, and it has become such a fabric of my life, it's hard to imagine not, I mean, there isn't a difference between what I do and my practice anymore. I just feel that confident and that comfortable with it, that I can talk about it with people. If people ask me that question, I would answer it the same way, whether they were meditators or not. They could then scoff at like, what is he talking about? Or they could say, wow, you know, could you talk to me a little bit more about that? I'm happy if people respond that way, but I'm not sad when they don't. You said you worried before that maybe it would sound crazy. It sounds like the apex of sanity to me. We are, <laughs> are seriously, the, 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 we are, we're constantly beset by uninvited emotions, uninvited events in the world. And so what are you going to do? Put your head in the sand, drink a lot, kick the dog. Those are all dumb ideas. But uh, the, the radical alternative offered to us by meditation practice is to actually just lean into it, allow it to be there without feeding it, as you say. Right. And <laughs> it's, if you think about it with any clarity, it's really the only viable option. Well, you know, it, 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 it's this. It's, it, when you sit and, and you, when you sit for some period of time and cultivate your practice and, and gets you some more clear, additional clarity, you begin to think in terms of like, is what I'm doing skillful or not skillful? Skillful meaning helpful in my life, in my mental process, in my emotional well-being, or is it not skillful? Which is different than saying, is it good or bad? Because good or bad are typically defined by some else, some religion that you might belong to or some philosophy that you might ascribe to. Skillful is more of an objective like, is this going to be helpful or not helpful? Um, and I'm, I find myself more in that world more often than anything else. And I'm happy and I'm happy in the 10% way because of that. Yeah, and and skillful, it doesn't need to be measured in a lab. It can be just measured in the lab of your own experience. Right. Like, okay, so if, I, if I'm feeling grief and I drink a ton, how do I feel then? Or if I'm feeling grief and I allow it to be here and I'm with it as bravely as I possibly can and therefore am minimally yanked around by it, how does that feel? Um, and it ain't rocket science. It's not rocket science, right. But it's counterintuitive. Deeply counterintuitive because we are trained to do the op. We're trained to, you know, self-soothe with shopping or, or booze or right. or pills or whatever. But you're actually – what you're talking about is – I'll just go back to that phrase that I use. I think the apex of sanity. Well, yeah. But and by the way, of course, I agree with you 100%. You know, and so I think that um, 
when you say we were trained, I find for myself, I'm not trying to speak for, you know, anybody else, but I find for myself that almost every time I look at a judgment that I make, it's really not my judgment. (laughs) It's somebody else's judgment that had previously told me or schooled me or whatever. I'm finding more and more, though, as I work with myself and as I look honestly at myself, you know, that I don't make those judgments so quickly anymore. And uh, that I find, you know, when we first, when I first started meditating, you're following your breath, you know, so you, when you describe that to somebody, they say, well, that's, you're just being hypnotized. Mm. So I asked your good friend Joseph Goldstein once about that. I said, you know, this person said, you know, is, is there any, what do you think? I mean, you, here we are just focusing, focusing, you know, watch this spinning, that sort of thing. He said, Joe, if anything, we're being dehypnotized. Yes, disenchanted. Yeah. Yes. But we're, it's the opposite of, of hypnosis. The opposite right, of being because hypnotized. Because you're, uh, you're not allowing yourself to fall under somebody else's spell. Uh, you're waking up to what's happening right now in right. your own reality. Uh, and then not taking it so seriously. So you might, a judgment might come, and then you, re- you realize, well, okay, that's a thought. Um, but I don't need to act on it. You know, what you just said is very, very important. I don't want to have your listeners miss it. Not taking it so seriously. Not taking ourselves so seriously that we're walking around and adding that more weight to the backpack. Yeah. Take, don't take yourself so seriously. You know, we're just... We're just human. Uh, thank you very much for doing this. Oh. I know you're not a uh, you're, you. You don't do tons of interviews, but you did a great job with this. And especially since we're talking about such a difficult and personal topic, you handled it all extremely well. And I think it's going to be of enormous use to anybody who listens. So thank great. you. Well, I appreciate those comments. Thank you very much for having me. I genuinely enjoyed it and appreciate it very much. Thank you. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. 
It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.